Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Greg. I'm one of the elders. Uh, I serve out at the city location, hopefully, uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet. Um, uh, now you know who I am, I guess. Um, I'm so excited to be here this morning uh, speaking to you from this text. I think this text is, not only is it kind of an exciting uh, text, uh, but it, it really has a very profound truth hidden in it. And I'm hoping that we can draw that out together today. I love a great legal drama. Anyone else a big legal drama guy, lady? You know, um, Law and Order. Dum dum. If you uh, think about some some very uh, some great movies, A Time to Kill, uh, The Pelican Brief, Philadelphia, Sweet Home Alabama. All these movies were. Just, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, I, I think that uh, the thing that I love about it is the, the intellectual sort of chess match of like, you know, will, will they be able to get to the truth? Will, will justice be served? Um, when I was preparing this sermon, I thought of specifically a movie uh, from 1992, A Few Good Men. Anybody remember that movie? Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson. So Tom Cruise is interrogating Jack Nicholson. He's on the witness stand and they obviously like it's getting heated and the emotion is rising. You can feel like the fervor. Um, you know, Jack Nicholson is in his sort of uh, uh, angry and arrogant way is like, you want answers? Tom Cruise says, yeah, I think I'm entitled to answers. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. You remember that scene? It was amazing. Amazing. Um, let me tell you, for weeks after I watched this movie, I was trying to work that phrase into everything. <laughs> you know, like, um, okay, Greg, um, you know, uh, 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 we're playing basketball. I- I'm going to guard this guy in the red. W- what do you want? To- I-, I want the truth. At the restaurant, like, sir, uh, you've looked at the menu. W- what, would you, what would you like? What do you want today? I want the truth. Like, just, I mean, just random places, places that didn't even fit. But I... I- I think there's something about this demand, demanding truth, demanding justice, demanding things to be made right and, and, and things to be revealed. This is a moral standoff between these two perspectives, and only one of them can be vindicated. Maybe that's why I'm so drawn to this text in Galatians. You know, Paul is not only talking to us about Salvation by faith in Christ, but he is, he's actually recounting a past event, a past experience where he had to defend God's truth, where he called Peter, a man of great importance and stature, probably the most famous and influential Christian leader at the time in the world, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, calls him to account. So there's a standoff. And we're going to see who comes out on top here. You know, Paul not only tells us about this confrontation, but he also, at the end of this text, is providing us, I think, a very profound legal argument about the nature of the law and the nature of grace. Now, we're several sermons deep in our series on this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. He's writing to a church in modern-day Turkey. He's trying to commend to them 
defend for them this doctrine of salvation by faith in Christ alone. But this competing view has risen up in the church, one that is eroding the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers too, their confidence in what Jesus Christ has done for them. And Paul wants to reinfuse the work of Jesus and the message of Jesus with the power and the prominence that it deserves. He is telling them uh, no other way, no work, no law, no accomplishment, no achievement, no association with any group, nothing else can bring you to relationship with God. And in fact, we were so helped, I think, last week by David. David Harrington preached to us. He reminded us that we can fall into the trap of approaching God on the basis of our performance. If I have performed well, I feel confident coming to God. And if I've made mistakes, if I've fallen short in some way, oh, then I'm hesitant. I don't, I don't, will God accept me? But no, the gospel encourages us to, to approach God on the basis of our identity, that we have been made sons and daughters. We have been brought in to his family. Now, Peter comes from Jerusalem. He's visiting this predominantly Gentile church, Gentiles being people who are on the outside, ethnically and culturally, of the Jewish people. Uh, And if you know Peter's story, actually, Peter, about 15 years before this, in Acts chapter 10, had been the first Jewish believer to recognize that God was working amongst Gentiles and bringing them into the family. Peter is praying and he sees a vision and God lays out these animals that are unclean, right? not acceptable for Jews to eat. And God uses this vision to say to Peter, don't call any person unclean. There's no person who is too far for my grace to reach them. There's no person who should be excluded from what Christ has done. And then immediately after this vision, men arrive and they say, Peter, you must come with us to this Gentile city. This Gentile man, Cornelius, has been praying to God, seeking a way in, looking at the law and the ordinances and the the rules and the rituals, trying to find how to reach God. And God wants you to speak to him. And when Peter arrives and shares the gospel of Jesus The Holy Spirit falls and Peter says, who can prevent them from being baptized? Look what God is doing amongst the Gentiles. An inaugural moment in redemption history when the Gentiles are included. Ah, but it seems Peter has forgotten. He's forgotten the message. He's forgotten the prophecy. He's forgotten the vision. He's forgotten what God did that day. Now, Peter comes and he uh, arrives in Antioch and it's awkward. And I don't mean like, oh, there's a little bit, something's funny, like what's going on? You're not really sure. This is like awkward youth group break break up awkward. Right? If you're in a youth group, you know, like two people dating and then they break up and all the guys are over here and all the girls are over there and no one is mingling because everyone is about, oh, what happened and who's on whose side? And I mean, the... Jewish Christians who come with Peter refuse to fellowship with these Gentile believers. Peter, in this way, is enforcing ethnic and cultural segregation in the church. 
on the basis of who is a Jew and who is a Gentile, who is following the Old Testament observances and who is not. This is a complete reversal of what God did in that moment with Cornelius. You see, Paul writes in another place that that God tore down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles by Christ's sacrifice, but Peter is re-resurrecting it. And why? Because of fear of the circumcision party. The circumcision party sends chills through my spine. What? This is not a, a party where parents get together with their infant sons and everyone's getting circumcised, snip, snip, snip. Although that would be equally frightening. This is a group of people, Jewish Christians, at least we think that they're Christians, they think that they're Christians, but they are reintroducing Jewish law, Jewish ritual, Jewish observances as the way to God. Putting a barrier between Gentile believers who don't know this, haven't grown up with it, never been exposed to it, and God. Saying that you, in order to really get in on what God is doing, you must first become Jewish. You must come to Christianity and Christ through Judaism. Why would they go back to this, whether it be Peter or Barnabas or these members of the circumcision party, also known as Judaizers. Well, lots of reasons. I mean, it's true the law has some value. I mean, the law was given by God, written with the very finger of God and delivered to the people. It, it did establish a way for the Israelite people, called by God, chosen by God, to be distinct from the world and the surrounding nations who did not know God But likely the main reason is because it's tangible, it's concrete. I know the rules, I know the boundaries, I know this is God's will and this is not. And in that sense, it's comfortable. They return to something that that they could see with their eyes, they could touch with their hands, something that was comfortable for them. It felt safe to them. The law felt safe. But like the golden calf in Exodus, The law brings death. Say that with me. The law feels safe. The law feels safe. But the law brings death. You know, in addition, these Mosaic law enthusiasts, if you will, they had these accusations or these these questions about salvation by faith. They would have said things like, well, I mean, if believers in Jesus aren't following the moral code, they aren't following the law, won't that just lead to more sin? Won't they just be transgressing God's commands even further? How will they know how to live? I mean, look at these Gentiles. They're lawless. They do whatever they want. They're wiling out. They need a law. This is why Paul rebuts that idea later in this text. He says something. He basically says, is Jesus a servant of sin? or a minister of sin, as if going Jesus's way could produce more sin, produce more transgression. But Paul refutes this idea specifically by teaching us what the law really does. Now, what about this emphasis on circumcision, just for a minute? Uh, If you were to sneeze, you know you got snot on your face and you're you're going to say something like, hand me a Kleenex, right? Probably what you aren't saying is, I'm so bougie 
I won't wipe my face unless I have the brand name facial tissue. Make sure it's a Kleenex. What you're saying is Kleenex is the most recognizable brand of facial tissue. Would you hand me a facial tissue? I just like to call them Kleenex. If you're from the South, you know this well. Oh man, I'm so thirsty. Got any Coke? Let me check. Yeah, man, I got Sprite and I got Dr. Pepper. Which you want? Oh, I'll have Dr. Pepper. We just call it all Coke because Coke is the most well-known brand. In that way, circumcision is the most well-known Jewish ritual. But when we talk about circumcision, we're talking about everything. All the laws, all the rules, all the rituals. Circumcision is just the representative idea. So we're not simply talking here about people who say, you know, you should get circumcised. A little snip won't hurt anybody. We're talking about taking on all of the law, all of the rules. Now, Paul's response to this emphasis on circumcision and the Mosaic law is to tell the people that they are misguided about what the law can do. Their insistence on human efforts as somehow essential to salvation actually puts them at odds with God's plan and what God is doing in redemption. So let me paint the picture for you. We're at the Antioch Church family barbecue. It's a Gentile barbecue, so you know they got the slow cooker. They got their pulled pork. They got their slow-cooked ribs working. Everybody's mingling. They're getting excited. They're going to celebrate Jesus today. Peter and the Jews that have come with him from Jerusalem, well, they're, they're over here, and they're thinking, man, those ribs smell so good. Ah. Oh. I remember when I was eating with the Gentiles, that was, I'm, I just amazed. But you know what? I'm a good Jew now. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't mingle. I don't eat that food. I keep kosher. I'm following the law. And they're separated. Now, Paul sees this, and he's not willing to let this go unaddressed. You see, because if Peter is going to set a precedent, I mean, Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, is going to set this precedent, that message, that story is going gonna, is gonna to run. And there's no telling to what extents it would go throughout the world. Peter doesn't associate with Gentiles. The Jews say you must become Jewish first. This stands to threaten the very work of God in the world at the time, creating a two-tiered system of faith. The Jews who are really in and the Gentiles who are eh, kind of hanging around the sun. Essentially going back to the time before Jesus' sacrifice. So Paul... Calls him out. Paul confronts Peter. You can see at the scene, he turns off the Pandora playlist. He says, hey, 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 hey. I got something to say here. Peter, I got something to ask you. Oh, you want answers, Paul? Yeah, yeah, I think I'm entitled to them. You want answers? Yeah, I want the truth. (laughs) But it's Peter who can't handle the truth. Now, this must be intensely embarrassing for Peter because his hypocrisy is now on display for everyone to see. The hypocrisy of refusing to associate with these Gentiles whom he has been associating with for like, I don't know, 15 years. And his hypocrisy in front of the Judaizers who've come with him because they think he's a good Jew keeping kosher. But he actually hadn't been doing that for a very long time. I'm so thankful for grace, aren't you? Peter gets a bad rap and, you know, he makes a mistake here. He is abandoning the gospel of grace. But he can return to the gospel of grace 
Peter and Barnabas, who, I mean, Barnabas has been going around to Gentile land, serving with Paul for the better part of 12 or 13 years. He also was influenced by this peer pressure. But God forgives. The obvious answer to Paul's question is that Peter, who is a Jew but lives like a Gentile, cannot expect Gentiles to live like a Jew. That would be backwards. But more than that, Paul's logic continues. He says, we are Jews. We were given the laws and commands of God through Moses, but we couldn't keep them. If you know anything about the history of God's people, they tried and they failed. The nation of Israel has this cyclical experience with God. And so Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Why would Paul say that? (laughs) Because the Old Testament history tells us God shows up, a pillar of fire, the sea is parted, the people are ushered out of slavery. There is faith and obedience for a time, but then they turn. They turn to some other savior, some other promise of help. God brings a judgment and a cleansing and then a restoration, and then the people are faithful again until they're not. Wash, rinse, repeat over and over through the history, numbers, judges, Kings, every book you read, you see this back and forth. The people cannot follow the law. In another place, Paul talks about the law. He describes it as a record of debt against us. Because the law is not able to bring a, give us a record of obedience, but it is able to show a record of our dis- disobedience. Now, I'm always surprised by my kids. I love my kids. But if you have kids, I'm sure you've seen this scene in your home. They play with a game or a toy. You come by and say, okay, now that you're done with that, it's time to clean that up. And so I give them a couple minutes to choose to do the right thing. When I come back, well, it's still on the floor. You know, kids, the first time I came by, I I was kind and I was gentle. And I said, you can do this. I asked you please to do this. But, you know, now I'm telling you, you need to do this. This is what obedience looks like. And then I'll come back the third time and I'll notice, oh, they failed to recognize obedience. So now I'm saying, listen, there is a consequence to your disobedience. This is how the rules work. This is what life is about. And that's when they become obstinate. They stand up and they start making these arguments. Well, I didn't take out the board game, so I'm not going to put it away. You know, oh, well, he threw those cards in that corner. He let him get it. Sweetheart, that's not how the rules work. And what we find is that the more rules encroach on our freedom, the more rebellious or the more our rebellious nature is revealed. That rebellion was always in there. But the closer we feel it pressing in on us, the more we want to push back. And this is what the law does. The law reveals our rebellion against God. The law reveals the great standard that we could never achieve. That's why Paul, when he writes to the Colossians, says that there was a record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, because disobedience to the law has a demand. So if we can't be justified by following the law, because we can't actually achieve following the law, how can we be justified? How can we have a position of honor and acceptance and love from God? Well, by faith in Jesus. You see, Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law. No other person has lived a perfect life. 
always doing what was right, never doing what was wrong, remembering to do all the things and forgetting nothing. Only Jesus Christ earned a position of favor with God in his perfection. But you know, even more miraculous than his perfect life, he was willing to give up his position of favor with God on our behalf. You see, the scripture tells us that for our sake, 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we, the rebellious ones, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gave up his position of favor and honor with God so that we could step into it, but only through faith. That, my friends, is the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus, that he would exchange his place for us. Then Paul continues. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What does that mean? Paul says this, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the most zealous for this law, for all men and women to come under it. But then I learned something. I learned that the law could not make me righteous. I could never live up to this law. And so through the law, through this lesson, the law taught me, I have chosen another path. I've chosen death to the law. Now, the interesting thing is this, death. When you die, you become free from the law. If you commit a crime and you die, do they put your body in the prison? No, because you're dead. The law has no hold over you, no sway over you. When you watch the action film and the bad guy falls off the cliff and you know that the good guy has won, they don't go get the body and put him on trial. Paul is inviting us to associate with Jesus' death. The next verse, I have been crucified with Christ. Thank you, Megan. When Megan was baptized, she went under the water to represent that Jesus died and his body was buried. And then she came up out of the water, representing Jesus Christ rising to new life. She said, I associate my life with this death so that I can be free from law just like Jesus was. And now I step into a new life in the same way because he has power to do that. But if we choose this path, we have to be all in. It can't be either or, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, Jesus plus. Forget, forget your personal attempts to be good, to be spiritual, to be moral. Forget the voice in your head that tells you, oh, if I just parent better, if I could just keep the house neater, if I could climb the corporate ladder faster, if I could study harder and score better on the test or maybe lose another five pounds, you know, drink too much, a little less often. Maybe if I could just keep my hands off my girlfriend, then I'll be good. Then I'll be a good person. Then I'll be accepted by God. If you're trying to do better or be better to earn something from God, you have missed the gospel. You missed the gospel. We call these things functional saviors. Because we say with our mouth, I believe that Jesus has saved me. But then with our life, we say something else. 
We say this thing or this action or this accomplishment, that will save me, that will fill me, that will validate me. True Christianity requires me, requires us, to abandon every potential path of self-justification, even group justification. Oh, I'm circumcised and now I'm following the rules. I'm in the crowd. I'm in the right crowd. It won't get you there. Only faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. To be dead to the law then means I have said my goodbyes to self-righteousness, self-actualization, self-anything. When a law comes, a standard comes, a rule comes, I say, you're dead to me. And I'm dead to you. You know, is it, the next verse or, or Paul says is, I, the life I now live in the body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. An interesting point Paul makes here. You can live by faith in a law, but the law never loved you. You can live by your parents' standards. They loved you, but they didn't die for you. You can live for corporate America, conservatism, liberalism, some, some YouTube influencer, whatever the thing may be, maybe your own peer group and your best friends. But you know what? None of them offer you power to live the life they demand. None of them will come into you and give you a new way to live except one, the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You see, you can serve the law, but Christ will serve you. If you choose to live by the law, you can serve it, but it won't serve you. Christ offers to serve you, to empower you, to fill you, to lift you, to love you. Paul makes it clear that there are two kinds of lives that we can live. One is under the law and one is lived in the sun. Let's consider how these two lives are different. These are the questions that we're all asking. Questions that we're all answering with the way that we live. Let's go to the first one. On what basis am I accepted? Accepted by God and accepted by others. Life under the law says I'm accepted because I follow the rules. I'm lovable because I meet the standard. I am worthwhile because I performed adequately. What does life live by the sun say? Jesus gave his incomparable life for me. Huh. That is the measure of my worth before God and before others. Next. How can I be sure that God is on my side? Life under the law. Well, I haven't messed up too badly. Or, you know what, I did mess up, but I performed my religious duty. I made up for my mistake. God knows that I feel sorry, so maybe he'll forgive me. When I was a sinner, when I was the enemy of God, Christ died for me. What, what could I do that would change the love he showed for me? Next. How can, okay. Well, it's supposed to say, what kind of life should I live now? That's okay. What kind of life should I live now? Well, look, okay, under the law, I got all these rules. I got these standards. I got these expectations. Better get to work. That's why I'm, work, I'm working hard to do what's right. Oh, life lived by the sun. I can see the beauty 
and the blessing of the life that Jesus lived. I want that kind of life inside of me. I say yes to the things that help me to experience God's grace the most. Not, not rules. Last one. What do I do with fear and anxiety? Life under the law. Fear motivates me to try harder. So maybe that's just the reality of life. Life under the law is a life of fear. There is no answer to fear under the law. Fear is necessary. Or life by the sun. I bring my fears freely to God. And when I'm reminded of how he loves me, my fear is calmed. You see, because the scripture tells me that God's perfect love casts out my fear because fear has to do with punishment. The law is always telling me about punishment. God is telling me that Jesus took my punishment. You might be thinking, man, Greg, that, that life over there on the right, that, that sounds really good. I, 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 what do I have to do to get that? Or, yeah, I know, I should, I should be doing these things. I got to work harder. No, 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 stop. Stop right there. That is circumcision thinking. That's law thinking. I got to do better. Be a better Christian. You can't be a better Christian. Ain't no such thing as a better Christian. Better Christian is an oxymoron. The Christian life is not something that you do. It's something you receive. Say that with me. The Christian life is not something that I do. It's something I receive. You can't be a better Christian, but you can have a deeper experience of your Christian life. You can receive. You see, Paul is trying to tell us that we can carry the law. And as we're carrying this law, whatever it is, the Mosaic law, some standard from your upbringing, something you put on yourself, doesn't matter. You can't receive grace until you put down the law. You got to let go of the law to receive the grace. Now, the sad thing is that you can pick up the law again. Because that's what Peter did. Peter and Barnabas, they had a lot. They were doing the grace thing. Then they started to say, oh, you know, I don't know. Ugh, this law is not so bad. I'm already circumcised. It's not a big deal. But the burden of carrying the law leads to death. We talked about that before. And it's a burden that you put on others. What was Jesus' rebuke against the Pharisees? You heap up burdens on men's backs and you don't lift a finger to help them. But the gospel is not law, it's grace. So you can live in the grace of the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You can receive a new heart, new desires that supernaturally prefer the good, not the evil. Obedience and not disobedience, but only by faith in the son. The only one who can come in and change you and help you. Paul ends with this final thought. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God because if righteousness was possible outside of Christ, then Christ died for no purpose. What does that teach us? Christ's death had a purpose. And the purpose was to accomplish something that the law could not accomplish. Later in another letter, uh, to, the book, uh, to the Romans, chapter 8, Paul writes this. He says, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit, the new life, has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through our flesh, through this, God did it. What the law could not do because it was weak through my flesh, God did, sending his son on account of sin as a sacrifice for sin so that the righteousness of God could be found in us who live by the Spirit and not by the law. I memorized that when I was 15 years old because I had come to know the pain and the guilt of sin and the the depression of trying to be better, knowing what to do and not being able to do it. And when I learned that phrase, I was set free. And the burden fell off of me and I was able to walk in new life. I thought about two kinds of people when I wrote this sermon. The first is people who've never experienced this. Didn't even know that there was a new kind of life to live. Maybe it's your first time to to know that God is inviting you into a life free of burdens and a free of performance and free from other people's standards. You can receive that life today. The second group of people are like Peter. You know that message. You maybe you even taught it to others. But through the course of time, personal experiences, you know, the pressure of living a Snapchat curated life, whatever you've forgotten. You put down grace at some point and you picked up law. You can lay down the law today and you can receive grace. We're going to have a time for invitation and response. We're going to have a song. I would invite you today. You can walk in this life. Father God, we thank you so much. Only you could could make this exchange. Grace instead of punishment. Life instead of death. Through what Jesus has done, we're so thankful. Help us to receive it. Help us to walk in it. Help us to every day choose it and keep coming back to this and experiencing anew the grace and the release and the freedom that you provide.